Stay sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. There is not a scintilla of evidence that this president is a racist. And just because you say it okay, every time so, you're on CNN, so, so just let's, because let's the show says it every single night, doesn't make we, it let him finish, true. Let him. The largest retailer in the world had never considered that maybe their commercial shouldn't be right before or after a song about young black men being gunned down. It's not just another black kid. These are human beings. I was born in a world where black murder was normal. My kids were born into a world where black murder is normal. But I don't want to die in a world where black murder is normal. Let's feel this pain and let's lift our voice to tell the lies. They are not criminals. They are not deviants. And their lives are just as important as ours. I learned very early on in politics that this is a cutthroat world and you have to be tough. 20 years in politics and I've learned some lessons. Number one, you have to look out for yourself. And now, Stacey Washington. Well, welcome to the program. This is hour two of Stacey on the Right. Great to be with you today. Call lines are open if you want to call in and join the program specifically to discuss our next topic where we're going to be unpacking this TED Talk by Michael Smith. He's a pastor and a public speaker now because he has brought to the forefront something that is, it's, it's a disgusting truth in our country, which is that certain behaviors that would never be tolerated by other groups are tolerated by one particular group of Americans to our own detriment. So you're probably wondering what's, what's, what's the deal? What's the, the deal is it's, it's music. Now we have a lot of people who discount, uh, you know, the impact of music. The fact is music is very, very impactful on us. Anything that you listen to, over and over and over again is going to have an impact on you. Anything that you listen to repeatedly that's set to music that you enjoy is going to have an impact on you. It doesn't have the same impact on every person. So this is by no means a call for censorship or anything like that, but it's a conversation that we need to have. And the reason we need to have it, because I, I always get this, someone invariably will email me and say, well, this doesn't apply to me, or I don't listen to that, so it doesn't apply to me. Well, if you buy products in America today, then you are a part of the rap music industry. And the reason that that's the truth is that most rap music is underwritten by commercial sales, ad sales, uh, revenue that comes from as a part of the, the entire packaging and marketing of the music. So while Walmart doesn't have their logo on an Eminem record, music videos that show Eminem at singing and rapping the songs on that record will have ads around them from places like Walmart and Tide and Clorox, things that you buy. So one way you can adjust that is obviously you can start buying, you can start purchasing things that aren't as commercial. Like we have uh, at, at American Family Association has cleaning products that you can purchase on the AFA.net website that don't have these same kinds of connections and directly support the ministry. And I encourage you to consider that, check them out online, give them a try. Um, If you don't like them, you haven't lost anything. It's just an opportunity to kind of direct your dollars in in a way that, you know, isn't tainted by a lot of this other stuff that I'm going to describe to you. So here it is. You've got Michael Smith, he's doing this TED Talk, and I couldn't do the whole TED Talk on the show, obviously, but I did feel like it was important enough to take some bits from it so that we can have this conversation and begin to understand the connection between the music 
And it's one segment of our population, not everyone. What's, what's interesting is it's produced by one segment of our population, but the chief consumers of the music are not the black community. So while rap is primarily a phenomenon out of black America, the primary consumers of rap music are actually white teenagers and young adults. So let's listen to how he opens this up. He's described how he started off as a pastor and he was the only pastor at an all black church and he got to know the other pastors and the teenagers that they worked with mentoring and and discipling them. And he began to understand some things that were different that he didn't know before he'd ever had large scale interaction with black people. It's number three. Now in this time, I learned a lot of beautiful things about a lot of beautiful people. I learned a lot of ugly things about myself and I learned a lot of dark things about the nation in which we live. But I also learned that I, being White Mike, specifically the white part, have a lot of power. White Mike has a question today, and that's this. How come when you turn on the radio in Jacksonville, or New Orleans, or Chicago, or Little Rock, the only people on the radio that talk about how great it is to kill each other are black? How come that exists? Fifteen stations on a dial, go up, go down. The only people on the radio bragging about getting automatic weapons, gunning each other down, are black. This right here is a song. Uh, my pastoral vocabulary won't let me read the title. Uh, but I will read this. Catch a young black male not paying attention at the red light. With your AK-47, let me see you shoot it. You're a killer, you're a killer, you're a killer. You're a killer, black male. Let me see you prove it. Why does this exist? Why does it exist? So you could say, well, freedom of speech. But it's not freedom of speech that helps it to exist. Because as we know, in a consumer-based marketplace that's capitalistic in its, in its nature, like, like ours, things that don't sell no longer exist. Things that are created that people don't want to buy are summarily shipped off to secondary and tertiary markets around the world where they're sold for pennies on the dollar. Sometimes they're sold for like $1,000 buys you four tons of merchandise that's in pallets. You don't know what's in there, but you can pay 1000 bucks for it and get four tons of merchandise. They also have markets like that here in this country. If you want to buy excess goods from Amazon, so these are goods that have been sold to someone like me. I buy it. I bring it home. I, I unpack it. I unwrap it of its packaging. And then I realize either there's something wrong with it or I just don't want it anymore. So I put it back in the package, but now it's been open. The seal has been broken and I send it back. I'm not talking about food. I'm talking about like um, a keyboard or a mouse or something like that that I might have purchased and broke the seal on and then I mail it back to Amazon. They refund me my money and they put that item into a box in the warehouse. The box may, the, the, I, the thing may slide out of it or it may stay in there, but the box is damaged because I opened it. They sell those for like 75 bucks gets you one of those or something like that. It's, it's some like tiny amount. And then people buy those. They have them shipped to their little warehouse or their garage. And then they unpack it and they resell that on eBay or some other market, maybe their own website. How do I know about this? I, I tell you, it's, it's weird. The stuff I, I get into like information that just, I just, you're reading one thing. Next thing you know, you're watching a video about some dude unpacking pallets of stuff that he bought from Amazon for 75 bucks a piece. So that the answer is the reason we have someone singing about shooting someone at the stoplight because he wasn't paying attention and the person who's singing about it is black and the guy who's shooting about singing about shooting is black is because there's a market for it. 
there's people who are willing to pay $15.99 for a CD or nowadays because there's Spotify and all that. They're willing to pay for a membership or an upgrade or 99 cents per song or what have you. There's a market for it. There are people who want to listen to it. There are people who are actually looking for that type of music. So he then goes on to talk about the impact that this is his speech. This is what he's proposing. But this is a serious subject for us, especially as Christians, because like I listen to some secular music. Absolutely. So one of the things you're going to find if you're a new listener to the Stacey on the Right show is that I'm not a paragon of virtue, like some, you know, person who only wears skirts and I, you know, I only go outside at certain hours of the day and all that stuff. I'm a living, breathing, walking person. I'm on my faith walk just like you are. And we're, we're going to disagree, but I'm also going to bring you the truth and the reality of what I'm living and walking as opposed to acting as if I don't enjoy, you know, uh, some secular music sometimes. It's like, that's, that's not the truth. Maybe in 10 years, I won't be enjoying it. Who knows? But right now, I absolutely do. But the question is, is the music that I'm enjoying that's secular, is it music that glorifies murder or, or, or some other activity that we know is not only a sin, but is illegal? And that's the question that we have to kind of bat around here and figure out where do we fall on this? And his TED Talk is one in which he goes pretty far in condemning Americans for our proliferation of this type of music and our refusal to see that it's negative and its impact on one segment of our society. But then he goes on to describe the real world impacts, which we talk about on the show, the per capita murder rate for the city of St. Louis and the city of St. Louis is majority black. Plenty of other ethnicities live there, but the majority of the people who live in the city of St. Louis, especially those impacted by violence are black. So he talks about some of that in this next clip. I'll take it even further because a lot of time racism exists uh, in what we in, in what's, uh, we don't know, what we don't see. Where are the white killers on the radio? Where are the white AK-47 shooters? Where are the white drug dealers? Where are the white people on the radio that brag about what it's like to murder witnesses before trial? The truth is they don't exist. And the question is why? Why don't they exist? Do white people not kill people? Do white people not use AK-47s to shoot each other? I mean, we know, do white people not do drugs? Do they not deal drugs? Of course they do. But why is it that it doesn't make it to our mainstream radio? Why is it that we don't hear it hundreds of times a day in th- uh, hundreds of cities across the nation, thousands of plays that say the idea that a black guy would kill another black guy is something to be celebrated, something to be romanticized? And why is it the white people don't do it? And maybe, that, maybe it's because there's no white audience for it. Or maybe it's because it's not really marketable. Maybe because it's not, can't get sponsors. I don't know why it is. Uh, or maybe it's because it's just not the white man's role. Or maybe when white people get up and talk about being drug dealers and AK-47 killers, maybe it's even sicker than that. Maybe when white people do it, they're accused of acting black. The truth is, in America, black murder is normal. Black murder is normal. The idea that a black man or a black woman would be involved in a homicide, either as a perpetrator or a victim, is so common, so broadly accepted that it basically goes unnoticed. And so he's saying this is a part and parcel to racism. I don't know if, if, if that's the direction I would take it in. I, I see it much more as the cultural degradation that comes from us glorifying activities that are wrong means that the further we go, the further we can go. If we open the door to one thing, it can then branch out into something else. 
And so it used to be, remember, it was quite scandalous when Elvis was on television and he was doing a new form of dancing that involved his bottom half of his body. And most Americans were so scandalized by the movements that he was making and that he called that dancing that he would be on television performing, but they would only show him from the waist up or the shoulders up because they couldn't expose Americans to that. Now, fast forward to when, you know, obviously television is past its, you know, new phase and now it's in its heyday and they're starting to kind of knock down in Hollywood. They're saying, look, we're tired of these archaic rules about not showing a man and a woman who are married to each other in bed. We're tired of these rules that people can't, you know, they can have a peck on the cheek, but they can't kiss on the mouth and so on. So as time progressed, a lot of these things were taken away. These rules that you you can't show that on TV. Then it became an issue where obviously we had the sexual revolution in this country and a lot of the things that were taboo before were suddenly, look, we're free now. We're liberated. We can say this. We can sing this. We can do that. But it's still interesting that this kind of singing about black women being, you know, all these names I can't say on Christian radio, the derogatory pejorative terms that are used for black women in this music that comes out of the black community, you don't have that kind of music about white women or Asian women or Hispanic women. It's only about black women. I blame the media executives and the people who actually make the music. They know they can make money making the music, but the media executives are just as as culpable because they're like, well, I would never let my children hear this or I would never say this about any woman that I know, but I'll definitely make this music and I'll definitely make sure that all the kids in the suburbs where I live, they'll be listening to this music and everyone's going to consume it, but it has to come out of a black face. It has to come out of a black voice and we're the ones making the music. So we have to hold some of that responsibility. We'll be back with more. Um, We're up against the break. We'll be back with more right after this. I'm Kevin Sorbo. You may know me from my TV series Hercules or Andromeda or one of my hit films such as Let There Be Light, God's Not Dead, or What If. I wanted to invite you to offer your full support for the ministry of Preborn and its leader, Dan Steiner. The team at Preborn is very focused and very successful at saving preborn babies from abortion. The ministry of Preborn saves babies' lives through ultrasound. By letting a mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see her baby in the womb, She'll choose life 80% of the time. For $140, you can help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes to saving babies. To donate, go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Every baby deserves to be born. 
This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. If you've seen any of the videos posted showing leftist mobs confronting conservative leaders, you know that we may be one wrong move away from mob violence. The most recent video posted involved Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens of Turning Point USA. They were eating breakfast in a Philadelphia cafe and were verbally assaulted with whistles and bullhorns pushed into their faces. Water was thrown on Kirk and Owens had to tell one woman with a bullhorn to get out of her face. I've said on my radio program that the slightest move or gesture could be misinterpreted and violence could erupt. Sometimes the perpetrators even seem to be trying to provoke a physical reaction. When Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi attended a movie with her male companion, they taunted him by saying things like, what are you going to do about it? They seem to be looking for an excuse to retaliate if he chose to defend her. In a recent commentary, Brandon Morris raises the same concerns I've been voicing. He says that if he was with a colleague, he might not react, but merely put his hands up to show he would not retaliate. But what if he was with a mother or a girlfriend? And what if a small child was with him? He acknowledges that it is easy to ponder these questions while sitting in your office behind a keyboard, but change that to a time when adrenaline is pumping through your system and your heart is pounding in your ears. It doesn't take much imagination to see how incidents could ratchet up into violent territory very easily. One more point. The leftist mob threw water on Charlie Kirk, but until it hit him and he could feel it, how did he know it wasn't acid or some other liquid? No one was arrested. What's to keep another leftist mob from raising the stakes? The bottom line is this. People are going to get hurt unless law enforcement begins to provide some deterrence against leftist mobs. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the show. Um... So this is a kind of a tough conversation that we're having uh, surrounding this TED Talk by Michael Smith, who is a pastor, and he's really, he's done the work to try to put a stop to what he sees as a cultural, it's, it's like a, a, it's something that's wearing us down. It's wearing us down. And when I say it's wearing us down, it's destroying the minds of our children. And, and when I say our, it's all of our kids, because Kids are listening to rap music, whether you like it or not, your kids are probably listening to it with friends because the friends are playing it. If your kid's not playing it, if your kid's not buying it, they're hearing it in the stores. I, I can't tell you how many times we've been out shopping and I've heard music. I'm like, I can't believe this is what they consider to be shopping music, you know. And when you talk to someone about it, they they just look at you. I mean, it's almost like you're talking in a language that they don't understand. They just kind of look at you and then they just, okay, thank you for telling me. And they float away. There's just no reaction at all. So Michael Smith goes on to describe how black murder is commercially profitable, commercially profitable. And he describes how businesses are actually paying to keep rap music alive and well and funded, including all the violence, the actual violence that goes along with it between people who are rapping about different topics and then You know, they end up going to a studio and shooting each other. Look at how many rappers have been killed in that situation. And and the other types of crime that are a part and parcel of this industry, it's number five. 
Now, we don't have Mammy Two-Shoes today. You can't get away with it. Nobody, nobody would put it out there. But we do have black people that get on the radio every day in white-owned companies, white-owned stations with white-owned sponsors that play the role of hypersexualized, hypercriminalized male. I ask these advertisers, I say, I've got hundreds of songs a day that celebrate killing animals. Will you put them on your station? They said, no. I've got hundreds of songs a day that talk about assaulting women and, 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 and abusing kids. Would you put them on your station? They said, no. I said, I've got hundreds of songs a day that talk about murdering blacks. Would you put them on your stations? They said, well, that depends. Depends on what? Who it's done by and who it's branded for. Because if we can get black folks to sing about it and we can brand it for our youngest black audiences, I think there's money to be made. I think there's American appetites to see these people that way. I said, how can you say that? They said, well, look, it's what these artists know. It's what they black people uh, create. It's a matter of fact, our surveys say it's what they want to hear, which speaks of a sickness. How do we live in a society where somebody says, you know what, I'm inspired to write a song that celebrates murdering another person. And then a person says, I'd like to put that on my station. Another person said, I'd like to pay for it. And then there's people out here in the audience that go, I'd love to hear it, as long as it's black guys. Because even white people buy rap music, buy this type of stuff, because we know that when we want to hear about killing each other, we know who to turn to for that type of inspiration. We call it our music, we say we own it. White people buy more rap than black people. Yeah, but we're very careful to turn it down at the stoplight when other black people are there. Why? Because we know we're just pretending for them it's, it's more authentic and real. I always ask the companies, what about your name? What about your brand? What about your value? And the largest radio company in the world said this, it's okay that we only have drug dealers on our black youth stations, we only have murders on our black youth stations, we support black charities. We give out water at the Martin Luther King Parade, I think we've got it covered. We've bought them off. Did you hear that? So when this man, Michael Smith, confronts corporate Americans about their support of this music that degrades women and children and human beings, that talks about murder and killing and rape and all kinds of just craziness, they say, well, we're doing our part in other ways. And it's not just handing out water at, at, at parades. When Al Sharpton comes calling, they write the check to him. When the Reverend Jesse Jackson would come calling, they would write the checks to him. It's, it's widely known that those guys don't use that money to improve the plight of black Americans or anyone who's poverty stricken, they take that money and they enrich themselves with it. But when they go to corporate America, they want that approval. And those guys used to be spokespersons for the black community. And so they would write the checks to them, which then gave them carte blanche to continue to support this music, which as we all know, when we, when we look at Silicon Valley and Steve jobs and uh, you know, Bill Gates, they don't allow their kids to have cell phones. Steve Jobs, when he was alive, his daughter did not have a cell phone. She didn't have an iPad. They wouldn't allow their children to play with the products that they create because they know that cell phones and iPads for young children and for teens, too much use, it can be damaging. They knew that. But they, they protect their own. But for everyone else, the consumption is, you know, it's, it's up to you to figure out if your child's listening to rap music. It's up to you to figure out if the music that, you're listening, that your child's listening to promotes and glorifies violence and rape and degradation. We're going to make the music. Your kids are going to buy it unless you take control and do something about it. That's their position. Again, when, when I hear Michael Smith say it's about racism, and he does make some points in, in his piece that, you know, Blacks are seen as less than. Blacks are much more likely to be involved in criminality. Most Americans who are white believe that black people are more criminally minded. They are, you know, he, he goes into a lot of that. And, you know, the, the statistics are the statistics. 
I don't know what most white Americans believe. I don't I don't like dealing in that because for every person you find that that agrees with his statements, you can find another person who doesn't agree. And I know a lot of white people and I don't think that they're automatically thinking I'm a criminal or my children or my husband or any black person that they meet. I, I think it bears more of a nuanced conversation than just saying most white people believe most black people are. Those are not statements that you can quantify and support scientifically. And anecdotally, they never hold up. But he's making a point here that we cannot ignore. He goes on to talk about what you can and can't sing about. And so what I'm going to do is we're going to go through that and, and talk a little more. I'll put the call lines open if you want to weigh in on this. I know it's so when when I bring on this kind of a topic, it's uncomfortable for everyone. And people tend to want to become defensive, but I'm not accusing anyone of anything. This isn't about me demonizing anyone. It's about calling to attention a, a glaring issue. It's garbage, this music. And when that garbage is allowed to flourish and it's pushed out and all of the kids in a certain age range are consuming it and normalizing it, it's a part of the culture that we keep talking about as Christians, we want to change. And in order to change it, we have to kind of first diagnose what, what is the problem here? What is making teens more susceptible to do X? You know, the, the rap music glorifies sex outside of marriage and it really demonizes marriage or any kind of loving relationship. It, it makes that appear to be something weak that, you know, lessens a, a person's masculinity or their statue for, for men. We don't want that to be the way our kids think, but the music they're listening to is, is promulgating that. So Michael Smith goes on to talk about how you can't sing about killing animals or, you know, date rape, et cetera, et cetera. And he makes just this, like, it's such a common sense point here at December 6. In the mainstream marketplace, people should hesitate associating their name with certain content. You know, there's certain stuff you can't buy at the store, certain stuff you can't get on iTunes because their brand doesn't want it. But if you want to hear black people celebrate and killing black people, they got thousands and thousands and thousands of those things to sell you. I don't think it's about censorship. I think it's about American cultural hypocrisy. Because here's the truth. These black entertainers, they can't sing just about anything. There's some stuff that'll get them fired. And they get dropped, and they get fired, and they get slapped on the wrist, and they get disciplined all the time. Why? Because sometimes they step over the bounds. A very famous case is what happened with Rick Ross. Rick Ross is the Mammy Two Shoes, one of the many Mammy Two Shoes of our day. He's, he's a black entertainer in a world carved out for him and a role carved out for him by white entertainment companies. And one day he talked about, in the middle of a song that celebrated dealing drugs and killing blacks, he made a reference to date rape. And when he made that reference to date rape, that set social media on fire. That got 100,000 petitions in 24 hours. Hey, buddy, date rape is no joke. That had white people standing outside of Reebok in New York saying, you better take this seriously. We're tired of a rape culture in America. One line in one song, move the masses. And you know what Reebok did? Did they stand by him and say, hey, we believe in freedom of speech. We believe in freedom of expression. It's just a song. Calm down. No, they fired his tail on the spot. The president came out and said, this goes against our high standards. He's gone against the values of our brand. Shame on Rick Ross. We're disappointed. He doesn't know how serious date rape is. And when I saw that, I thought, wow, how convenient. Isn't that amazing? But here's what really happened. It's not their brand. It's not their values. Rick Ross went off script. He was hired to get black customers, and they think that black customers go with black bait. And in America, black bait is the hypercriminalized, hypersexualized portrayal of black people. And as long as he had sung about that, the stuff that got him hired, he still have a job at Reebok. But when he touched other sensitivities that affect us, he lost his job.
And so that is some pretty uh, stunning conversation there, the, the, the story that he's talking about with Rick Ross. And it's true. It happened. I remember when it happened. And here's something else interesting that he shared towards the, towards the end before he completes his talk. He talks about how it took him five years of protesting, you know, kind of by himself uh, to get one corporate sponsor to stop sponsoring this type of, of content. He said, your, your ad is coming on before and after this content that glorifies rape and murder, and you should not be affiliated with it. And after five years of pushing the issue, he was finally able to get one corporate sponsor to step back and say, no, we won't be affiliated with this anymore. But everybody else is still, you know, if it comes through their ad agency and they say, we want to place, you know, this many hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of your ads on this station, BET, MTV, uh, or around around this show, this DJ show on MTV, BET, and here's a sampling of what they play on that program, and the orders get signed, and the money gets paid, and the ads are placed, and that ad revenue goes back to, part of it goes back to the person who's making the music. It goes to their advertising executives. It goes to the people who put together the music, the the music industry, the producers, the the distribution systems. Everybody gets paid. And as they're getting paid, kids are, it's piped right in. Just like these earbuds I'm listening to this program on, listening to American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk in my ear over the commercial breaks, just like you are. Kids got these earbuds in and they're hearing the constant constant mantra of, so when this person does such and such to you, they deserve this. They deserve a bullet. When that, you know, pejorative for a woman doesn't give you what you want, you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do that. Women are this. Women are that. You know, and the complete, like there's, there's, if you've not seen what's going on online and this, this is, so this is not anyone's fault that parents are kind of disconnected from what their kids are into. That's kind of normal. We like our music from when we were kids, our kids are listening to the new music. They're watching the new music videos, but most of the new music videos are nothing but twerking and women gyrating around. And that used to be something that was frowned on in the black community. And then it was normal. And then it was frowned on in the larger society. And now it's just normal for any person, any woman to do it. It's just you, everywhere you look online, on YouTube, on Instagram, the videos are of women, you know, who can twerk the hardest and the fastest and all, and all of that. That is an outgrowth of the rap music industry. And so I want to address really quickly, somebody, probably quite a few people are listening to this and are saying, I listened to rap music and I turned out great. So did I. When I was younger and all my friends were listening to it, I was like, well, my friends are listening to this. You know, back when I was a kid, rap music was a lot cleaner than it is now. But it was still, you know, the seeds of what it is today. This is not, you know, a wild and fanciful dance with the idea that if you just listen to rap music for 10 minutes, you're going to go kill people or, or what have you. No, not at all. I never said anything like that. And if you think I'm saying that, the rappers themselves are responsible for the large scale cultural degradation that we see because other people aren't responsible for their own actions. That's wrong too. But I'm saying it's a huge factor. 
We can't deny the fact that there are no Asian rappers, that there are no Asians who rap about Asian women being prostitutes. They don't rap about rape. Sometimes people make correlations between rap and rock and roll music. And there are some questionable lyrics that have been sang out in in rock and roll music. But rock and roll music doesn't have nearly the saturation that rap does. It's almost fallen out of favor, comparatively speaking, when you look at the sales. Just just Google the sales for the, the different albums for the top people who make rap music and the top people in the rock and roll world. They're still making some money, but it's nothing like it used to be in comparison. And so there's no reason to be defensive about it. If, if you like listening to rap music, this you know, you're free to do as you will. Just like I'm free to sit here on this air and say that this is a problem that we've allowed to grow. We've allowed it to get to where it is now. And we can't see around the corner to see what the next step is. But we can see that with the growth, I mean, it's exponential, the growth and exposure of rap music and the culture surrounding it, there has also been a comparatively stark decrease in religion and Christian worldview in public life. And the outgrowth of that, people don't want to admit it. But look at the school shootings. Look at what the children are doing now. They're watching pornography. Most almost like they say the, the statistics are now well over 80%, almost 90% of children have seen pornography by the time they're 12 years old. And that children no longer see sex as just something for married people or something in a relationship. It's just something that two people can do. And, it, and I said two people, not a man and a woman or a girl and a boy, two people, any two people can do. And that they don't consider the other sexual relations that are outside of intercourse to be wrong. So you can do those without really, you know, feel like you're really doing anything wrong. That's kind of thanks to Bill Clinton opening those doors up. And so much more. I mean, we could just sit here and talk about all of the negative indicators and run them down. But the point is that if they're getting this in the, in the earbuds, if this is what's constantly pounding into their heads in the earbuds and they're accepting it, they're listening to it, they're absorbing it, and then we see what's happening. It has to be connected. And it has to be something that we're shocked and saddened by that we want to stop. Not because it's only happening to the black community, but because everyone is consuming what is being produced. So we'll take your calls when we get back. 866-963-2037. And I have some more info for you. So stay there. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. Democratic socialists have a dream, an America where no one has to work, everyone is guaranteed an income, free housing, and a free university education. The only thing they aren't promising is that everyone will be thin. Maybe that's next. Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are the darlings of the moment. But can their ideas work? According to leftwingvox.com, absolutely not. Brian Riddle of the Manhattan Institute points out that the first 10 years of implementation of the democratic socialist fantasy would cost $42.5 trillion in hard American cash. 
This outlay would require the federal government to confiscate all corporate and personal profits over $90,000 per year, implement a value-added tax of 87%, and that would only be the beginning. There's a reason that Venezuela is on fire. Citizens are eating their pets and zoo animals for food, and water is scarce. Socialism. Entertaining these ideas is folly. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. Abraham Hamilton III. God put us in this world at this time to be salt and light. We don't fold because of the darkness that we're facing. This is not the first time in the world's history that it's gotten dark. God has called you and I to be his ambassadors, even in this dark moment. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekdays at 5 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. Kids have questions. In fact, they have some of the most challenging questions you may ever be asked. Mommy, how do we know God is real, and why does he allow suffering? Oh, hold on, baby. (laughs) One question at a time. Why not prepare yourself with the 21 Toughest Questions DVD set from Focus on the Family and the American Family Association. Dr. Alex McFarland offers insight and clarity to help parents communicate their faith to their children. Order yours today at afastore.net. Securing America. Not far from the San Francisco airport is a secret warehouse where government agents are fighting the opioid crisis one shipment at a time. It's one of nine international mail facilities in the U.S. where overseas mail is sorted and screened by Customs and Border Protection agents. They say they intercept fentanyl and other drugs on a regular basis, often concealed in small amounts. Ryan Spradlin is special agent in charge with Homeland Security Investigations. We've seen a lot of activity um, with, you know, criminal organizations, transnational in scope, that again are, are, they recognize that they can make a lot of money um, with opioids. While commercial shippers like FedEx and UPS must provide customs officials with packaging information in advance, making suspicious mail easier to spot, there's no such requirement for the U.S. Postal Service. In San Francisco, Claudia Cowan, Fox News. You can download episodes of Stacy on the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. It is my pleasure to be with you today. StacyOnTheRight.com is the website. Also, Stacy on the Right on Twitter and Instagram. And um, we're glad to be broadcasting and just having a good time on the radio discussing these tough issues, which can sometimes mean that people get a little upset. I have been getting some interesting emails. Um, (laughs) I'm not going to address them. Uh, You have to know that it's not my first foray into getting emails where people are either happy or upset or direct messages. And so... If I get them and I respond, it's because I feel like it's worth a response. And if I don't respond, it's nothing personal. But you're, you're so any, anything that's insulting is probably not going to get a response. Anything with threats in it, you know, that type of stuff. You're not getting anything back. I've been down that road too many times before. And if it's something that's clearly meant to, you know, elicit a response as opposed to, information gathering or something like that, then 
you know, again, probably not going to get a response. So I'm, I'm not discouraging the emailing and all of that, the direct messages. I'm, I'm just saying, you know, I don't think many people would respond to some of the, the different things that I've seen come through. So just to let you know, nothing personal. Um, and for people who are wanting me to stop, I've heard that before too. Not doing that. In fact, I've heard it from the most interesting quarters. And it's, it's funny how when you pray for something and you ask the Lord, you know, if you want me to do this, will you, will you let me do this? And that, that's an interesting prayer, which Stacy of old would never have prayed. Like I would say, that sounds double-minded almost, to say, Lord, if you want me to do this, would you let me do this? Well, what I've learned is that everything I think that I want the Lord for, for, you know, God wants me to do this, not all of that is actually what he wants me to do. And so when I say, you know what, if you want me to do this, will you let me do this? And I mean it, and then I just let it go. And then that comes to pass. The opportunity for me to do something comes to pass. And, and then I have to say yes or no. And I go forward because I'm like, wow, I've been praying for this. And then I just kind of said, you know what? I'm praying for this so much that maybe I'm outside of what God wants me to do. And then it's as if he's saying yes. Then when you've got that, you can kind of run with it. But that's when you know, of course, you're going to get people saying to you, well, you should stop doing that. And that's when I know exactly that I'm doing the right thing. Because I'm like, you're telling me to stop doing this. I already prayed. If God didn't want me to do this, this would not be what he would have me doing right now. So thank you, but no thanks. So, you know, to, to kind of talk about it, but not talk about it. So we have also got, I just was really surprised to see, um, it's actually, it's good news, but it's also gives the left something else to talk about. They're always so deranged about Donald Trump. And what I'm talking about here is that breaking right now, they're saying Trump pulled ex-CIA director Brennan's security clearance, but it's not the president who's doing the pulling. Um, apparently, they've just announced that Brennan's um, security clearance has been pulled. And I think it's been pulled because of his really poor behavior on online social media and, and in his punditry. He's working for MSNBC. And if he wouldn't have done the kind of things that he's done, said the kind of things about President Trump being a treasonous spy, et cetera, et cetera, then he probably wouldn't have had his clearance pulled. And so I'll just say, you know, as someone who held a security clearance and it wasn't even a high one, it is very, very easy to get your security clearance pulled. I don't care if you're special. You know, it seems like these people feel like they have a right to their security clearance. But I know when I did my exit briefing to leave the military, I was told a couple of things very clearly, which was, that secure information survives the clearance. So whatever I learned that was secret remains secret forever. So I don't get to say, well, it's not, it's not classified anymore because I'm not cleared anymore. It means the information remains classified. I'm no longer cleared to view it, but whatever I viewed in that information that I retain has to remain with me. I can't share it with anyone who doesn't share the clearance. So the person who briefed me said, the way to handle this is don't discuss or disseminate anything that you may retain knowledge-wise that has to do with secret information that you were exposed to. He said, even if you're sharing it with someone else who previously held a secret security clearance, you're really going outside of what you're supposed to do because that information was shared with you 
for the furtherance of your work as an active duty service member with a security clearance. So once you're no longer working on active duty with the clearance, you have no reason to discuss or disseminate that information, even if it's with someone who had a security clearance at the time that you did. And, and it was so interesting. The way he put it was just keep yourself safe and secure by not discussing it. And what, what good reason would you have to discuss it? And I said, oh, I agree. He said, good. I, he said, I always get someone in these briefings. Every day that I do these briefings, I have someone who'll say, but what if we're just discussing blah, blah, blah? He was like, just don't discuss it. And I said, I'm with you. And I haven't had any reason to discuss any of those things. But it's different for me because I went into the private sector and I was, I did some temp work. I stayed home for a while. And then I was working uh, for a bank, actually, <laughs> was working for a bank doing like, you know, nothing special, nothing spectacular. When I, my husband and I were expecting our oldest child and I went back to work after I stayed off for six weeks with her. And then we realized I need, I need to be home with this baby. And so I quit my job and I stayed home with her. And so I never had a reason. No one ever said, oh, well, you used to be on active duty in the Air Force, and you, you know, working with uh, crew chiefs and F-15s and F-16s. What do you know that's secret? Or, you know, what, what kind of expertise could you provide? Never came up. Now, if I'd come out of the Air Force and gone into punditry and start talking politics, someone might have said, oh, you know, former Air Force analyst, you know, that, that type of thing. But they wouldn't have said you have more credibility because of the job that I did because it just doesn't lend that. It, it just my job was not important. But for former CIA director, he's trading on his previous experience as the director of the CIA. It lends his comments a lot of credibility. <clears throat> Pardon me. So the credibility that is lent to him in this exercise makes it such that you wonder why he still has the security clearance. Like, so maybe he still has it because that's the standard for a director a former director of the CIA. But according to Sarah Sanders, this is kind of how this thing went down. Here's a quote from her. Mr. Britain's lying and recent conduct characterized by increasingly frenzied commentary is wholly inconsistent with access to the nation's most closely held secrets and facilities. The very aim of our adversaries, which is to sow division and chaos. In addition, she said the administration is evaluating clearances for Comey and Hayden and Susan Rice, which I'm kind of amazed. Susan Rice has gone on to be on the board of Netflix. For what reason would she still hold a clearance? Former FBI attorney Lisa Page still has a clearance. Former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates still has a clearance. Former counterintelligence agent Peter Strzok. Now, Peter Strzok was just recently fired. So you would think that any day now he would be scheduled for that exit briefing where he would be read out and, you know, now your clearance is revoked and nothing that you recall can ever be shared or disseminated. But he still has one. And former F Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, his security clearance was deactivated after he was fired earlier this year. And Bruce Orr, who's still in the Justice Department, although he was demoted from Associate Deputy Attorney General. More broadly, the issue of Mr. Brennan's security clearance raises larger questions about the practice of former officials maintaining access to our nation's most sensitive secrets long after their time in government has ended. That's another quote from Sarah Sanders. I agree with that. And not because these people have been shown to be harsh critics and unfair in their characterizations of the president and the Trump administration, but because as a matter of course, regular people who leave the government, like myself, 
have their security clearances revoked because that should be the order of the day. Having dozens of people running around the country with access to secure facilities with, you know, access cards and key cards that still function does not serve our government. It doesn't serve our security apparatus. It doesn't serve any good purpose at all. It makes you wonder, are they still working? They're not working there anymore, but are they still working? They've retired, but are they still working? Like Supreme Court justices agree when they become Supreme Court justices that they will work until a certain age. And then when they retire, they're still available to assist with cases. So even though they may be retired, they're still, according to what they signed to become a Supreme Court justice, they're basically saying they're doing this for life. When they go into retirement, they're not actively on the court, but they're available for, you know, uh, consultation. Their expertise is still available to the nation, especially to the Supreme Court justices and the clerks and everyone. But that's not the case with these individuals. So Comey has actually announced that um, he doesn't have a security clearance anymore, which is pretty typical for someone who was fired. Hayden also said on Twitter that he did not go back for classified briefings. Uh, and but he would occasionally be asked to offer a view on something. So people have still been reaching out to him for his advice on certain items. Um, Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky, of course, said uh, back in June that he spoke to the president about the very issue. And of course, Fox News host Tucker Carlson also called for Brennan's clearance to be removed after he reported that he still had it. I don't think this is a partisan type of a thing. I think it's a good government practice type of a thing that it appears that they become very lax in this area and they need to tighten it up. And when they tighten it up, it will that the added benefit will be that we have fewer people running around who have the security clearance to access, you know, facilities who are being asked to uh, comment or, or analyze information that they shouldn't have access to. If they're leaving, if they're retiring, you know, that's, that's just it. So there's a report out on the AP, APnews.com, that black Americans aren't buying Omarosa's turn against Trump. Now, this is fascinating because I certainly haven't bought it, but I will tell you, you got to give it to her that she is really quick on the uptake in these interviews. If you saw, so I, I played just a hair, I think, earlier this week. I watched so much uh, uh, that, but that didn't make it into the show. Uh, she was on with Savannah Guthrie, and Savannah Guthrie got handled. She totally got handled by Omarosa. Um, she needs a little bit more boot camp training for, for uh, pundits before she interviews somebody of that. Like that, that it, it didn't go well. Now, there's a bunch of people that were interviewed for this piece. Earl Ofari Hutchinson, who's the author of the book, Why Black Lives Do Matter. Um, he says that her tell-all mea couple won't win her win any brownie points with most black Americans, that their loathing of Omarosa is virtually frozen in stone. She's still roundly lambasted as a two-bit opportunist, a racial sellout, and an ego-driven hustler. And I think what we're seeing, you know, again, as we as we see this story kind of unfold. We're seeing media really is excited to speak with her because they're hoping for some revelations that'll be embarrassing to the president. But after the furor over the book is over, just like we saw with, with James Comey, he did a few other things that had to do with the book and speaking engagements. And now he's largely 
you know, out of the media for now. I, I don't know if he could kind of resurrect that by making comments, but, you know, he's kind of moved on into private life. He drug it out, but it, he definitely has moved on. And I think the same thing will happen with her. Now, another Democratic strategist named Aisha Moody Mills also commented on whether or not the black community is accepting Omarosa's big, you know, foray into uh, reversing her stance on Donald Trump. And she says, we should not mistake anything that has happened here to be Omarosa in any way purporting to be a benefit to the African-American community. So, you know, I think it's kind of sad, uh, but it's, n- it's not going away. We'll see what else develops out of it. Um, now, there's also, in addition to the security clearance stuff, there's some information out of Turkey with Erdogan and, and Pastor Brunson, which, you know, we have to be praying that he would be released. He's, he's now on house arrest, so he's no longer in prison, but he can't leave the country. So he's back with his wife, and that's really good after two years in prison. But it's just, it seems like, I guess we're doing all that we can, but wow, it, it's really not the best idea to go into some of these countries. Like some of these countries, like going to Iran, that should be a no-no for anyone who's an American. Um, you know, at, the Middle East is just not the best place to go if you're an American, unless you're on command sponsorship and wearing a uniform and going there, you know, flying in on a C-130, flying out on a C-130. So they're saying that they are uh, in receipt of of a $15 billion investment from Qatar that could bolster their economy and that they are going to boycott all of our electronic goods, to which I say yawn, you know. But I I am interested in seeing that pastor and his wife be released so they can come back to the United States. And I hope that that's what happens. We have to keep praying about that. God bless. Um, StaceyOnTheRight.com and UrbanFamilyTalk.com. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Have a great evening. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.